Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is uh, Isabella Ramdo. Isabella is an economist with over 20 years of experience in trade negotiations and industrial policy. She has worked as a senior advisor to the African Mineral Development Center and the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. She has also worked as deputy head of program economic transformation at the European Center for Development Policy Management. As an economist and trade negotiator for the government of Mauritius, she worked assisting government negotiators, capacitating them to negotiate on behalf of the government. Isabella, very nice to have you on the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Sheila. Good morning. And thanks again for the opportunity. So I, I wanted uh, to see if you can help us appreciate when preparing representatives of governments to negotiate, what are the three top issues of concern for you, Isabel? Yes, so I think the first critical issue for me is preparedness. It can be um, obvious as a comment, but actually this is a really determining factor because it structures the balance of power at the negotiating table. What I mean by this is, you know, um, government negotiators need to really have a good knowledge of the value of their resources. It's often one of the weakest points in many countries, developing countries. And that's not just for mining, it's for most of the negotiations that we do. Often we walk in negotiating room with a massive disadvantage compared to the investor who has more information than we do. Example, uh, you know, um, most of the investors, if they are at that table, it's because they know exactly what they want. They have a business case. They know what wealth you have. They know uh, what is the feasibility of the project. And they al already made all their calculations. And if governments have not done that themselves prior to the negotiation, they're setting themselves up for failure. And understand having a knowledge of the mineral resources is not enough. Uh, governments must also have a good grasp of what those minerals are used for, um, their importance, in global supply chains, <clears throat> sorry, how these minerals are handled in the global market. We've recently seen how the need for the low carbon uh, transition is driving a price for minerals and how the geopolitics is playing out around that. Um, and there is a lot of diplomatic plans by resource rich, by, by resource demanding countries for this. And countries who own those resources, if they don't know uh, where those minerals end up and prepare for this ahead of the negotiations, put this in the deal, it will be too late later on to think about regulating around beneficiation, etc. Um, the other element that is very important is to be able to model um, uh, financially the project so that you are prepared to get the best of what you, you want. Otherwise, you end up depriving yourself from the revenues and giving over generous um, incentives. So this is for, for the preparedness before going to the negotiations. The other element is um, having alternative plans because we know very well that plan A's never uh, work. I mean, not never work, but you don't end up going with your wants. You get what, uh, based on the compromise. So it's very important to be able to um, have alternatives in mind. Um, the second other key uh, priority for me is uh, uh, that governments need to make sure that their priorities and objectives are set right. Again, this can be an obvious one, but it's very important because um, extractive investment must be consistent with the national development long-term objectives. 
um, mining projects outlive politicians most of the time. And um, you know, if this is not set right from the beginning, then you may end up having a bad deal. Um, and governments must, must resist the pressure to jump into those negotiations if they don't have those proper plans and are not clear uh, just because you know the market is ready for the investment, for example. And the third very important element for me is to be able to know who you have uh, on the other side of the table, know your counterpart very well. It's as important because it allows you to, to uh, anticipate the tactics. Uh, in our jargon, we used to say, you need to walk a mile in the shoes of your counterpart. Um, because um, you know the way the company negotiates the strategy of their teams, et cetera, is very much a function of the kind of company you're dealing with. We um, always like to tell the governments not to hesitate to you know, uh, call upon their counterparts to get feedback if they know this company has you know, negotiated uh, in and under the country, get a sense of, of feedback on the negotiations with investors, be able to to be able to anticipate the tactics you know know what are the global strategy of that investor whether those investors has track records in disputes with governments all these are very important parts to prepare yourself for um to be at the negotiating table right that's uh, very uh, interesting a lot of the things you have said you've said it may seem obvious and in a way you are right because they are generic but what you're really saying is that you can't take things for granted. That nothing yes. is self-evident and, and that you've got to go into negotiations as if uh, you are starting from ground zero and not take anything for granted. I want to follow up on something you said, which I think it's, it's, it's often overlooked and that is knowing the counterparty. I mean, why, why is it important? And what are the aspects that you should focus on? Because you could know a company, but you could know it in a way that is not helpful in the negotiations. So what is it specifically about the company you're negotiating with that you have to be cited on? This is, this is key because um, the, the, the the track record that this company has had either in your own country or in neighboring countries, is it gives you, um, an, an, an idea of what kind of investor it is. Of course, companies you know, change uh, corporate heads over time, et cetera, but it gives you an idea of the extent to which this company is a, a company that's, that, that's, because you know, at the end of the day, you're gonna live with this neighbor, this company for a number of years. So it's, it is important for you to know um, the, the way they've, they've worked, um, the kind of partnerships they had with governments in other places, the kind of relationships they had with local communities, um, the kind of uh, whether some of the commitments that have been taken, for example, in terms of environmental management has been respected. In what ways, when there are problems, generally it's when there are problems that you discover the real face of your counterpart. It's always important to try to get to see how issues were solved, to what extent that went to um, court or you know, mediation was used. I think those elements are important to build the relationship yourself with the company. Hmm. So, so really, it's about... Uh... Understanding, for instance, the, the, their corporate value system. In other exactly. words, you know, what do they value and what do they not value? 
Yes, uh, exactly. It's understanding uh, essentially how they interact with how their inter suppliers, yes. uh, how they view the law, how they view governance, how they view uh, compliance. Yeah, and I how they respect so and how they respect uh, the, the engagements that they've taken. Exactly, and 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 that's what you mean by track record. In other words, when they did form relationships elsewhere and signed agreements, are they the kind of company that is likely to then respect them, or they sign them and no soon does the ink dry, they move on and do things differently. So being able to put to profile them and understand the limits of what they will do and will not do helps because then you know the creature you are dealing with, but also to your point, you know how they are likely to respond in case of a similar occurrence. Yeah, uh, and you can adjust your, have, yeah. Exactly, and you can adjust your negotiating mandate accordingly. <clears throat> if you have a company that, you know, um, has themselves their own standards and respect some of those standards because this is what they've done elsewhere, you know, you can build on this. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a construction of a relationship that is often tailor-made based on, the, on the, the particular project itself. But as you say, knowing um, um, how some of the big challenges have been overcome when, when they happen uh, allows you to frame your regulatory framework also around the project. Hmm. You, you've made reference to uh, a mandate. Um, uh, I wonder whether you can just briefly uh, define for us, what do we mean by a negotiation mandate? And, uh, you know, what are the principles that should guide the evolution of a negotiation mandate? Yeah, so essentially, uh, the, the, the term mandate is um, the, the, the limits and the, the the bottom and the top, you know, of what you can be beyond which you will not go and below which you would not go in a negotiation. That is what is the, the best acceptable terms that you want. This is basically what a mandate is. And to me, this is shaped by the regulatory framework of a country. Let me explain that. Um, the regulation of mining activities varies, you know, across countries, sometimes within countries. And there are generally two types of regimes that guide um, investment uh, negotiations. One is the rather universal regime that you see that is applicable to uh, all mining companies, like mining investors' rights and obligations. They are set in the law. And then the second one is more contractual. So basically whereby the mining rights are negotiated on specific contracts. And that, you know, um, I've got a bit of an issue with this one because it creates a web of different legal regimes which are tailored to specific projects, but at the same time that make the whole um, uh, management of your, your relationship with your uh, investors com uh, complicated. And those they can be very large com and comprehensive or very uh, narrow. And in reality, very few countries have unique regimes. Countries have a mix of both, and the scale varies depending on um, you know, the, the, the projects. And the guiding principles that would determine the mandate will depend to what ex uh, on the extent and the kind of regimes that you have in place. Um, 
the most important element here is to make sure that the countries have solid laws, the regulatory frameworks um, uh, are in place, and um, that you know they set the rights and obligations concerning the big issues like fiscal rules, fiscal policies, social economic development, your ability to add value and you know uh, use your mineral resources to your for your economic development without having to um, you know cap yourself. Um, and um, the more complex the specific mining contracts are, the wider the scope of the negotiating mandate. And this is this we have seen. And the higher the risk for government, because when laws are, are clear and the scope of the mining contracts can be tailored around the specific projects, then the, the when your your overall rules are clear, then you are you are better able to go straight to the point. Um, I think one thing that we've observed is that those very complex contracts reverse the hierarchy of laws and weakens the overall governance of a country. Contracts which are normally supposed to be at the bottom of a hierarchy take more prominence and they often con uh, contain things that are uh, very constraining for governments including strong stabilization clause, which exempt uh, investors from certain obligations, but also constrain the sovereignty of the countries who cannot no longer regulate. And that's the reason why I think it is very important not to have mandates that are too broad for contract negotiations and maintain them as simple as possible to be in line with the existing law so that you can address very specific issues like duration of contract, specific environmental regulations pertaining to a mine site, you know, rehabilitation plans, agreements around community agreement, development, et cetera, that are, um, uh, that, that are relevant to the particular project. But to me, the mandate should not overstate what the law um, is able to do. Right. So, so really, you, you advocate uh, a very simple but precise and, and mandate that target specific de deliverables as opposed to sweeping mandates that in the end uh, may end up seemingly delivering a lot, but substantially delivering very little. So who ideally in this context uh, determines that mandate, uh, which is then handed over to the negotiation team? Uh, it's the, the overall government. I would say, you know, this is one thing that is um, uh, important when, uh, when you look at the composition of negotiating team. This is something, when I take the example of my own country, when we were do, doing trade negotiations, the mandate was given by cabinet. So essentially you have the key ministries responsible for various different elements that are contained in the, uh, in the element of a, a you know, contract that you're discussing, that you're negotiating, whether in the context of mining, it's environment, it's economic development, it's uh, permitting, it's fiscal, et cetera. The mandate is, is given by them. Now, there, this is where you, we need to make sure that the sequencing between uh, sequencing is right and the hierarchy is right. A lot of those things are already contained in the laws. So you don't take that, and, and that's a bit of a trap that sometimes government make. They don't trust their own legal regimes. They think that putting that in a contract or in a specific negotiating mandate with an industry, with an investor, is going to give um, the investor uh, com comfort. No, 
you need to build trust by telling the investor that this is the law, this is you're coming to this country, this is the law, this is what we have. And for this particular project, this is what we're going to negotiate. We're going to make sure that for that particular project, you know, there are some uh, specific environmental concerns. What is the duration of the contract? What are you going to do in that phase or that phase, etc.? What will be the relationship with the communities? Because we've got communities that have, with whom you're going to share land or you know water, whatever. If it's offshore oil and gas, so I think this is what the mandate should be about: the project, not the country. Hmm. It's interesting because. Uh, I assume you are, you, are, you are emphasizing the project because basically it, it is that economic resource over which you are negotiating. And, and you have to, uh, if you wish, ring fence that asset and all the things that are pertinent to it, economic, environmental and social, and focus the negotiations on that instead of having a sweeping view of uh, the country at the expense of uh, specificity. I, I find that interesting. So in that context, Isabel, how important is good political leadership in being able not only to uh, issue a, a very robust mandate, but also be able to chart the path in terms of how we approach the project? extremely important. I think we shouldn't under um, understate the importance of political leadership here because the negotiations of extractive resources has a particularity compared to other types of negotiations because um, you know minerals are the property of the state and they are um, often given the, the, the upfront investment that are at stake. These some of those discussions happen before even coming to the negotiating table at the highest level, at the highest political level. So in that regard, it takes political leadership takes a different dimension, um, um, and you know is clearly key. And um, so first, we're talking about trading off non-renewable resources that are prop that is the property of citizens in exchange of economic value. And once that resource is over, the economic value if it has not been well invested, you're only left with a hole in the ground. So the first um, key uh, reason why political leadership is important, I, I would even call it political stewardship, is because it is an immense responsibility to ensure that the people benefit from the outcome of these negotiations. I think to me, this is uh, the, probably the most important one. Second one, extractive contracts have a lifespan that goes beyond political cycle. So it means that they can outlive governments that have negotiated them. And in that sense, it requires leadership to ensure that the deal serves the broader interests of the country beyond the political cycle. Not always an easy thing to do because, you know, um, People being what they are, and political politicians being what they are, it's um, it's it's a bit of a hard thing. But this limits the risk of reversal when the the next party comes to power. Third mm -hmm. is um, uh, yeah. <laughs> So the third, there is also pressure on governments, both from citizens and from investors. So here again, we need really strong leadership to manage the expectations from citizens because mining investments are long-term endeavors, but communities have short-term needs. So one way is to ensure that their voices are heard and they are publicly consulted. And it is really important um, you know, to make sure that the government gives that uh, um, confident and comfort to people that their interests will be represented. Because if 
their interests are not represented, it will undermine the trust both in government and the negotiators, and most importantly, in the mining projects themselves. And I would say another important dimension is, and this is really important, we felt it ourselves several times when we were negotiating, your political leadership to support the position of your negotiating team, because uh, that is a big, this, this is a big problem. Very often you see, you have situations where unhappy investors bypass the negotiators, call upon the politician to unlock the situation. What happens, the team cannot stick to their mandate and you know this affects the whole deal. Hmm. So you said very uh, important uh, issues, you set them out very clearly. But also in the process of doing that, uh, Isabel, you have demonstrated the complexity of uh, the issues because for one, you recognize that you know, your government are political animals by nature and that they operate with a certain cycle, which is actually uh, contrary to the cycle of mining projects. Exactly. You've also uh, said that um, you have several interests, uh, even beyond the party of the day itself, you have several interests, uh, the investors, the communities and others, and that all of them are bringing pressure to the bear and that a mark of a good leader is to balance all that based on the understanding that really they are trading uh, citizen ownership for economic value. And that if, if they focus on that North Star, if they focus on that hill, then they can balance these. But if not, then the, the interests of these various parties will pull them apart. And, and, and uh, in that respect, then the best man or woman wins. And that best man or best uh, woman is not always the country. I, I think that is very, uh, important. So let me follow through on that. Now we know what the issues are. We know what the challenges are. To succeed, I mean, what, what are uh, the, the critical success factors of a sound uh, negotiation strategy? What should guide us uh, in order to succeed? I think it's a bit of a summary of what I said earlier. One is ensuring that, you know, your the mandate that you get is you're going to be able to negotiate it without a risk that somebody will just go behind I think this was something that we experienced live uh, when we did some negotiations at some point in time where uh, you know on the 11th hour um, the negotiation was not going the way that the other counterparty wanted and they just pulled their phone and, and you know, things were turned upside down. And 20 years down the road, those negotiations have never been signed, by the way. So this is, this is something that is important. And most importantly, if, if the, the negotiating team is very clear on the mandate, and the mandate is not a whole a big bag of all sorts of everything with you know, measurable and, and, and clear outcomes at stake, then uh, the negotiation is going to be smoother and most probably more successful. Hmm. I mean, you have stated already that um, generally, when one puts investors and governments in one room, uh, the power dynamic tends to favor investors in part because they can prepare it. This is something they do all the time. They have the resources. But also to your point, the very fact that they come to the negotiation means they've already done their homework. 
they've assessed the geological stock, they've assessed the markets, et cetera, et cetera. So they are generally in uh, their comfort zone. So, and so the question I wanted to ask is, despite all that, uh, do we have any proven track record of successful negotiations between some countries on the continent and investors? And if so, what institutional characteristics do these countries display? Yeah, I think there is no easy answer to this one because I think it depends on how you measure success. Um, <clears throat> are we looking at the overall mining contribution to the economy, the number of jobs that the, the, the project or the mine has created, the revenue it has contributed, or are you looking at um, you know, to what extent people are feeling that they've benefited from it. I think the measure of success, how you measure success will, will answer that question. Or are you looking at, you know, the environmental footprint? Sometimes you have um, mining projects that have contribute really well to the economy, but then suddenly you have, you know, some big environmental disaster and then, you know, the deal is thrown out of the window because there is a dispute between the investor and the government. Um, and also now we, we're seeing many deals are being questioned because of lack of transparency over the way this has been negotiated. There are a number of deals that are being reassessed over, for example, suspicion of corruption. So what, what are we looking at when we think about success? The second question, the second issue mining projects are long-term endeavors. So the appreciation of success or, or um, yeah, evolves over time, right? At some point, you know, governments, uh, especially when there are political changes, the citizens may feel that they are benefiting. And then at some point in time, later on, a couple of years later, this is not sufficient because the expectations at time T, when the negotiations were concluded, you know, have not been materialized. So I think here again, you know, it's very hard to say a country X has had only successful factors because you can see i just take for example a, a, a country like south africa where people might think you know well we never really had big disputes over contracts well the country doesn't really go with with contracts but when you look at some legacy issues you look at environmental issues you look at now the way um, some companies are are responding to the new laws um, you wonder whether um, the economic contribution alone makes uh, makes it good so I think you know uh, it's, it's really important to see what we mean in terms of success and <clears throat> The, what, what is for me important, you know, I was talking earlier about preparedness to the negotiations. To me, you know, um, the, 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 the institu institutional tendencies, like you say, that, that is displayed by countries that have done better at some point in time or projects that have succeeded, to me is, um, you know, uh, based on to what extent the governments manage to get a deal that they think was fit at that point in time. Um, the second uh, question, countries that have less, I think it's a metrics, it's mainly those countries that have less conflicts with mining companies over deals, um, probably have their hierarchy of laws in the right way. So if you see the way um, uh, the contracts are aligned with national laws or supersede them, and to what extent government are able at some point in time to, um, you know, seek for, for, for changes because 
the, the economy did, requires this without having to get into problems of being sealed under bilateral investment treaties or stabilization clauses. To me, it shows you that you know the country has been able to get a, a deal. I mean, the deal is um, adaptable and changeable to uh, fit the needs of a growing society or a changing society. The other thing is yeah. partnerships, the partnership between industry. I think this is uh, probably and uh, on two last little points here. One is um, partnerships between industries and, 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 and mining industries and governments. When you see governments and industries working closely together, most likely that the relationship is, 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 is better. And finally, I would say um, uh, important element for me is uh, monitoring and oversight system in place because signing a deal is not the end of the story. It's the start of a long journey and the, the extent to which government is able to adequately monitor the implementation of all the commitments is a sign of uh, to what extent in the long run you will be able to assess that project as successful or not. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm reminded that sometimes uh, our discussion of issues can be too simplistic. I mean, how often do you hear people discussing uh, these negotiations and reaching very quickly the conclusion that uh, it's a raw deal or that it's a good deal? And yet when you unbundle it the way you have, which is to say, uh, show that one on the one hand, even if you have a mandate, and you, you, you are able to say, we got what we wanted. That's only within the context of, you know, a time frame of a year, that you still have to put that outcome to the test of time. Yeah. And that if you subject it to the test of time, it might fail. And yet the negotiation team really only can only work with what they have in the room. And, yeah. and, and so, uh, you know, trying to project into the future is futile. But the, the important thing that you say too, which I personally have experience of uh, as a citizen of Botswana is that even when in monetary terms, in relationship terms, because of longevity and others, you can argue that there is success. The very fact that the social, political and economic dynamic of a country changes means that when the next generation reflects on what the past generation delivered, they often feel it was suboptimal because they exactly. are looking at it with, with today's lens. One of my uh, biggest fears, uh, Isabel, having worked and negotiated with uh, governments and mining companies is that I'm always mindful that we try to do our best in the knowledge that the next generation is going to come and they're going to look at us with a different lens and probably conclude what in God's name were they thinking? And that they will judge us harshly because their own yardsticks at the time will have changed completely. And, and I think it, it's an important reminder for us to avoid jumping to conclusions, uh, you know, one or another. But, but something we know quite apart from that mining companies or oil companies are more equipped is that actually the executives are also better paid yes. and potentially more motivated to succeed. I mean, our governments are perhaps 
underserving citizens, when they send civil servants who are generally very poorly paid to go and negotiate with others who have more drive and more skin in the game, should we find a better way to incentivize our negotiators? Yeah, this is clear. I mean, this is a clear problem uh, that salaries of public officials, even if it's, if you're not negotiating, you know, the, the, the bottom line is public officials are poorly paid compared to anybody else. I think this is clear. And the key challenge is not just the salary, it's the frequent turnover in government because good people leave, but good people get poached, they get better offers and they leave. And therefore, not only the governments are not able to retain them, the government has to start all over again to train people to be able to deliver on, 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 on the public goods and in that context to go and negotiate. You know, it's it has it is a constant problem and, and a pervasive pervasive issue, especially in developing countries where on average salaries are low. Um, and definitely those low salaries do not attract high caliber uh, negotiators. And if governments want to be the solid team, they definitely have to make an effort to remunerate their staff better. Um, I don't think the solution is to outsource negotiations to external actors to bridge that gap because um, you know, there might be some conflict of interest there. What I can uh, share with you in terms of my own personal experience working for a small country that had, uh, that was understaffed. We are a country of 1 million people with, you know, 10 people maybe maximum in a trade negotiating team. What we found as um, this kind of solution, if you want, to this problem is to build real multi-dimensional um, uh, and multi-stakeholder teams. So what we had, we had, uh, you know, trade, uh, in, the, in our case, trade negotiating teams that were multidisciplinary. So you would tap into the technical expertise of your other ministries in terms of knowledge for the particular project that you that you're negotiating for you tap into interministerial expertise as well because this is very important it's not just the technical nature of things but also making sure that um, you get the buy-in of your other ministerial uh, counterparts because at the end of the day these deals have to be endorsed by parliament but most importantly there is this multi-stakeholder uh, um, approach that we had taken at that time when we were negotiating because um, you know you have a lot of of, of talents within the private sector in your country for whom you defend the interests. So when the government is negotiating, they're not negotiating for themselves, they're negotiating for the, their own local um, industries and, and, and on behalf of the citizens, of course, but bringing in um, the expertise from these other stakeholders group, in particular those that have business acumen is a gold field. We did this when we were uh, when we were negotiating trade. We always had made sure that you know um, all the representatives of the industries that would be impacted by the uh, agreement would be represented. Of course, the, the chief negotiator is a public official, but uh, the 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 brain 
if you want, is infused by what other people in the country can contribute. I think it's not the ideal solution, of course, because what you would want is government itself to have real good negotiating teams. The what is important also to say is that negotiation is a full-time job. It's not a, something that you do in between two files. And that's one of the weakness in many uh, government bodies that we've seen, even in our own countries. Um, because if you are doing negotiation in the morning and then you're doing something else in the afternoon, you never get the, uh, the, the acumen for that. So I think beyond the fact that there is a need to really invest in good quality teams, uh, working with the talents that you have in the country and maybe in the region across the countries, uh, could be um, a way for governments to beef up their capacity. Hmm. It's, it's interesting because what you are really uh, doing here, Isabel, is that you, you are recognizing that the sovereign entity and the nation with all its component parts is uh, the interested party here. And that the government is just an agent. And that is important to see beyond uh, the government and public service resource and extend this reach to the whole country, including your private sector citizens who themselves bring skills to bear. And that if we move into the negotiation room, having drawn from these elements, we are better for it. I think that that is very important because if you take countries, for instance, as an example, like South Africa with a very uh, strong, I, private sector and a very long history of private sector, not to use the skill and knowledge in that country to help the government negotiate trade deals, wherein you know uh, that the ANC is a relatively young government compared to industry, is a travesty. Because at the end of the day, it's the, the, it is the country to, as a totality, including the private sector, that is, uh, uh, you know, sold short of his own potential. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you worked for the African Mineral Development Center, for instance. In your observation, how prevalent is this willingness by emerging market countries to work with the private sector to foster national interests when negotiating with not just uh, investors, but also negotiating international bilateral treaties, et cetera. How, how prevalent is that? I think not sufficiently prevalent. I, I, I don't know how many, uh, for example, um, governments negotiate in, with their private sector sitting at the same table. I know, I remember when we were discussing, uh, we would bring the private sector with us in the negotiating room. They would sit at the back, of course, but that was not common practice. I think it is really an under, uh, underutilized resources. Um, few uh, governments, to me, what I find very sad is that, or, um, you know, um, sad is probably not the right word, but maybe not uh, appropriate. They'd rather get support from outside rather than go and get support from their own legal, uh, experts in their own countries that have 
done very well in other economic sectors. So, you know, there is a tendency to think that local competence is not good enough, uh, that probably what comes from abroad is more, uh, is, is better. I'm not saying that it's, it's not necessarily the case, but you probably have to, to, to look within your own uh, country and most probably, you know, local uh, experts, for example, when you're talking about private sector, this is a way for you also to get to understand how the private sector works when you walk from, from, from the public se uh, sector, because you're negotiating with an investor who is a, a, a private entity and bringing along with you your own private sector allows you to walk in those shoes. It's, it, it has multiple advantage, but I don't think it's sufficiently tapped into. Um, I think it should be, um, you know, governments should really work more with their own um, expertise, including at the regional level, I think. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, I, I've always thought about that myself. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's hard to speculate, but I think part of it is that especially in Southern Africa, um, I use again South Africa, because um, the industry, especially large industry, has always been in the hands of uh, white people. Uh, if you then later on bring a black government that historically has been at loggerheads with the industry and sees the industry as having perpetuated certain injustices, it, it's a bit difficult to reconcile and suddenly create a sense of nationhood. But I do think that is why your point on good leadership is so important. Good leadership rises above that period and realizes that once you have uh, dealt with the political dispensation, you move forward and you take every bit of your country's resources forward, including people who previously might have been uh, on the other side. But uh, there you are. That's a, a discussion for another time. Uh, Isabel, thank you very much for your time. I've enjoyed having you on the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much, Sheila.